We'll turn your Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and as I said uh, at the introduction, or at the start of the service, this becomes the meat of the letter uh, to the church in Corinth. It really runs here from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7. It has a lot to do with with Paul's defense at this point, Uh, not so much of his travel plans, although we get a little sense of that again this morning uh, in these few verses. But, but of why and how he has dealt with them in his apostolic teaching. Uh, they, their attacks on him, their assaults on him about his character and the nature of his ministry becomes a, a key theme for Paul. Uh, Paul's writing out of a great deal of what we might say anxiety and anguish and sorrow. And so he opens up this section with, with really a fascinating illustration and by, by warping or, or shifting or changing, turning on its head the way they think about ministry. And it all becomes about the concept of what is honorable and what is shameful. And this honor-shame dynamic becomes a prime, prominent piece uh, in these verses this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and just read down here through the end of the chapter in verse 17. Paul writes this, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Just, just quickly, he's waiting for Titus to come back after delivering the severe letter, after the painful visit, and he's wanting to know what is their response. And so while he has an open door to preach in Macedonia, and we know from 1 Corinthians that was a huge burden of his, uh, or, or abroad, he now returns to the place, goes quicker so that he can try to meet Titus on his way back and find him quickly. He can't sleep at night, he's bothered until he can talk to Titus. But thanks be to God, verse 14, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as of men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Uh, My youngest this past school semester has been reading and just finished a book about samurai. I think it was called The Samurai's Tale. And so uh, he became fascinated with samurai. And and, uh, so he learned about Bushido, which is the samurai code of honor and shame. Uh, And so I introduced my sons to Akira Kurosawa's four-hour epic seven samurai black and white subtitles only. You've got to be a serious samurai fan to watch that watch that film, but it's just this epic journey, and it's all really about honor and shame. And, and you might be familiar enough with e- Asian culture and Japanese culture in particular uh, to know that a samurai, if they were captured, would even at times commit seppuku, S-E-P-P-E-K-U, or S-E-P-P-U-K-U. Seppuku, or you might be more familiar with it as harikari, where they would literally commit suicide out of the overwhelming shame at having been captured. Now that's very foreign, to our Western way of thinking. We actually think of someone that's a prisoner of war, that survives and persists, and you might think of John McCain, as they are a hero, and there's great honor in that, and in living through that kind of ordeal. And so there's this kind of difference between what is shameful 
and what is honorable. And so, so much about honor and shame seems cultural. And we certainly have things in our culture where people in various groups assign honor or shame to them. It's, it's, it's shameful if in some circles if you have a high school diploma, but honorable if you have a college diploma. It's shameful in some circles if you're a stay-at-home mom, but it's honorable if you're a career mom who has it all, or depending on your circles, you can flip that 180. It's honorable if you're starting on, on the team. It's shameful if you ride the bench. Uh, it's honorable if you make the dean's list. It's shameful if you don't. We have, we have all these concepts of what is honor and shame. It's, it's honorable if you have white collar, shameful if you have blue collar. And these are all so culturally dependent. Uh, Mike Rowe, uh, famously, who, who did the uh, world's dirtiest jobs. It's honorable if you do a hard job and work hard and you serve others in the community. There's honor in just working hard. It's shameful if you sit at home constantly searching the help ads because you're looking for your dream job, right? And so it just kind of depends, honor and shame. And so when Paul's going to use the concept of honor and shame, it becomes very important that we are on the same page with him about it, that we don't let culture become a barrier to us with the way we think about what he's teaching us. And so we want to think biblically about honor and shame. We're in the midst of Lenten season. That's not something that in, uh, in Baptist circles we make a whole lot of, although my family, we're going through a Lenten devotional that Paul Tripp just came up with, and essentially it's a 40-day countdown to Easter. And in that sense, there's, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it kicks off in some circles with Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, they, they would go to church and they might actually even, a, a priest might bless the ashes and then they put a little ashen cross on someone's forehead. Now, that particular uh, practice doesn't find its source in the Bible. There, there's no place where you put an ash cross on someone's head. But what they are attempting to symbolize is found in the Bible. And what they're attempting to symbolize is this concept of ashes. And it's a concept of shame and of repentance. We might see, think of it most clearly with Job. Job is an honorable man. Job has wealth and he has a family. He walks with God and he follows God and he's righteous. He's the most righteous man on the planet, the Bible would tell us. And then he's struck down by the hand of Satan under the authority and providence of God. And he has boils all over his skin and all of his children die. He loses all of his flocks. His own wife turns against him, says, curse God and die. And where does Job go? He goes and he sits in the ash heap outside of the city where they would burn the trash. And he's scraping his skin with these pot shards to try to get rid of himself of the boils and to take care of his affliction. And as he sits in the ashes, he would even heap ashes on his head. It's a way of showing how broken he is. It's a way of saying, I'm no better than trash. And I need to turn and follow God. And what is God doing? And so Job is a picture of someone who's moved from amazing honor to astounding shame. Paul becomes a picture of that in his own life. 
Paul sits at the feet of Gamaliel, whose, whose nickname was the light of the law as a teacher. And he teaches Paul the Old Testament, what we think of as the Old Testament. And, and, and so Paul literally has learned from the best of the best. Uh, Paul has gone to the Ivy League version of a rabbi to learn from. Paul ascends through the ranks and he becomes a Pharisee. And he's a teacher of the law and he's a follower of the law. He knows his own heritage as a Jew. He's a persecutor of the church. And so he's risen through the ranks to a position of tremendous honor in Jewish circles. And then God saves him. God saves him by striking him blind. And so you definitely see the irony of God in that moment as the man who had learned from the light of the law now can see nothing until his eyes are awakened to the true light of Jesus Christ. Suddenly he's rejected by the Jewish authorities. He spends years living in the desert being discipled personally by Christ himself. And then he goes on his journeys, and ultimately, as we know later from Paul's life, at times he ends up naked and all alone and with nothing to eat. Paul seems to go from a position of great honor to tremendous shame, and yet Paul flips it all on its head, and he actually says it's the other way around. And that's what he's doing for us this morning about the nature of ministry. And Paul ultimately is telling us this in these verses from 12 to 17. There is no greater honor than serving our conquering king in true ministry. Now he does this with this illustration and everything is kind of uh, packed around it and, and hinges upon it. And it's this illustration you see right in the middle. Verse 14, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He talks about being an aroma. Well, Paul is using something that everyone in Corinth would have understood. Spurgeon famously said one time, every preacher must know both the word and his audience. And that's what Paul's doing here. Paul is communicating to these Roman citizens in a way they would have all immediately understood. He is using something that was known in the Latin as the vir triumphalis, or the man of triumph. And it was a triumphal procession that the Romans would do for a conquering general. Uh, they had roughly 200 and some of these prior to what we think of as AD 1. Uh, there was another several hundred following after that. There was, a, there was even a placard that we can go back to and look at and see the record of each kind of triumphal parade or man of triumph. And this is what Paul's referencing. And there are some details to that that help us to understand exactly what he's saying. Paul's capturing their attention by taking an illustration and flipping it completely. Because at the Vir Triumphalus, the one who is honored is the general. There was a gate on the edges of the city of Rome that the only time this gate was ever allowed to be opened was for this procession. When this kind of procession would take place, the entire city would shut down except for it would be a carnival-type atmosphere. There would be merchants kind of on the street selling and partying. All the temples were opened up for all the partying that would take place. Uh, nobody's going to school that day. It is like a massive combination of a military parade and a circus all, and a fair all rolled into one. And it would begin early in the morning before breakfast and the, the conquering general would give a speech and there was all these requirements to even have one of these parades. To have one of these parades, you didn't just have to win, but you had to have killed 5,000 of the enemy. Uh, you, you had to have brought back many spoils and, and of war and captives. And so he'd begin with this massive speech to the senators. 
And they would all gather outside the city and they would, they, he'd give this speech to them and then they would start the procession. And at the start of the procession would be the other senators and, and all the representatives of the republic. And as they marched in, it was kind of their way of saying he's like king for a day. And this is back when it was a pure republic and so they didn't really acknowledge one guy. But this day, they're going to acknowledge him. And as the procession would move forward, they would actually have people acting out certain scenes of the battles. It would be like a rolling float. Think of the the Rose Parade or the Macy's Day Parade where you see these floats come along and you see people acting out things. And this is exactly what it would be like. Winding its way through the city had a specified path that it had to take so everyone knew where to go. And so they would act out scenes from the battles and they'd be singing and shouting. And then would come all the captives of of this general They'd be the conquered people, usually the princes and the kings, and they would be in chains and in shackles. Oftentimes, they were required to carry burning jars of incense. It was a way of saying, this is the presence of God coming in front of you. They they would march forward knowing that at the end, they would die. Uh, When they would get to the end of the procession, the conquering general would usually choose one or two or three to set free, and the rest would literally be executed in front of everyone to show the power and the might of Rome in this general. And then would finally come this general on a chariot pulled by four horses, blazing white, along through the city. Following him would come his children, his family, and then the rest of his army. It was just an amazing sight that people all knew about. It it would be the kind of thing where in our culture we talk about all the hard winter of 1982 or, or we talk about, remember that time this team won the championship. They would talk about these veer triumphalists and remember this one and remember that one. It was a way of the entire citizenry getting behind these battles. And this is what Paul's describing here. This is the illustration he's giving, except he's flipping it on his head and he's saying we are actually honored to have been conquered by the general. Somehow, there's now honor in what everyone else thinks is shameful. While Rome is dehumanizing these captured uh, people, these victims of war, some of who would be soldiers, but others would have just simply been people that were part of the citizens, prominent people that are now in chains and bondage and seemingly walking to their death, trampling flowers being thrown on the path so the scent is rising to the air. Paul's saying, that's who I am. Jesus is the general, and it's good to be his captive. And to the Corinthians, that was a very offensive concept. And it's flipping on its head their idea of what honor and shame really is all about. And so Paul is telling us there's actually no greater honor in doing ministry than serving our conquering king. This is where the honor is at. And so Paul is not going to ignore the difficulty. Paul's not going to ignore the feeling like you're in chains. Paul's not going to ignore the sense of carrying incense or stomping out flowers on his path. Paul's not going to avoid even the concept as though you are walking to your death. He will actually come specifically back to that idea later in Corinthians, though we die. But Paul is going to help the Corinthians, and by God's grace, I hope this morning, my heart first, and your heart as well, to understand where the true honor is at as we do ministry. 
Paul's going to segment it in three costs. Three costs associated with the, when you do ministry right. And those costs are going to be emotional, and your reputation, and in the things you have. Now, this should not be shocking to us because Jesus prepared us for this when he comes to us with the gospel. And, and in Mark 1.15, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. What kind of kingdom are we now involved in as citizens? And Jesus says things like, take up your cross and follow me. He says things like, count the cost. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so those sound like hard demands placed upon us in order to do ministry and in order to follow Christ. And those are not just salvation specific, right? That's not just at the gospel moment. Because we understand the gospel is all of your life. And, and as you are saved, yes, in one moment, you now live out that salvation for your whole earthly life. And so counting the cost and taking up your cross is not just walking an aisle when you prayed and get saved or kneeling beside your bed when you prayed and were saved, but it's all of life. You never get to a point where you retire from carrying the cross. And so there are these significant costs to it. And so every one of these, we're going to break it down in the same three ways. What is the nature of ministry? What does this tell us about the nature of genuine ministry? What does this tell us about the cost that's involved? And we're just going to apply this question. Why pay that price? Because it does seem steep and high. Let's look first of all at the emotional one. Verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Now that's an, Im an immense thing for Paul to do. And it tells us a lot about what is going on in his heart. Because Paul is frequently craving an open door of the ministry. He actually asks other believers, pray that God would give us an open, effectual door of ministry. So for Paul to leave a place where he is able to proclaim the truth freely, because his spirit is not at rest, starts to clue you in to the turmoil that he's experiencing. We know that Paul carries the weight of all of the churches. Uh, later in 2 Corinthians 11, when he grocery lists all of his sufferings, he actually says it this way in verse 28. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He later describes his affections for the church in Thessalonica like that of a nursing mother. He describes his ministry in Ephesus as having spent every night and day teaching them and caring for them. He's moved deeply when he has to depart from them. And so Paul had a general concern for all the churches that he had ministered to. He describes it in terms that start to tell us that it produces sleeplessness in him. It's kind of like uh, when you're new parents and someone finally uh, kindly gives you a date night and you and your spouse go out, and all you do is talk about the baby the whole time you're out anyway. You know, there's just this sense of a burden and a responsibility. And Paul feels this for all the churches, but he's feeling a particular or specific emotional weight for this church in Corinth at this moment. Paul has had this painful visit. He sent the severe letter by the hand of Titus, his friend and his co-laborer, and Paul has no idea how they're going to respond. How is Corinth going to respond this time? The last time he was there, you remember there's this man standing up and he's falsely accusing Paul and he's, he's making character assassinations against Paul and other people are letting the man do it. No one's defending him. It's almost impossible to defend yourself. Almost impossible. 
Paul even recognizes that throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians. And later when he grocery lists all the ways he suffered to prove his affections for them, he even says, this is foolish that I'm even trying to do this. It's astoundingly difficult. And so what you need when someone else is falsely accusing you is you need people to defend you. The church in Corinth doesn't even do that. That's his last experience with them. And so he pens this letter and sends it off to them, having no idea how they're going to respond. And so Paul obviously is worried. He has this emotional connection to them. Paul knows that Titus may come back and with the story that they've rejected this letter also. Paul knows that Titus may come back and hear that there are some that are even rejecting the gospel itself because it doesn't match what they want. Paul knows that there are some that as, they come, as Titus comes back, that they're persistent in living in disobedience. Any reasonable minister of the gospel at this point would have started to worry and be concerned, am I gonna, what am I going to do now? Is Paul going to have to write a scathing letter back again to Co- the church at Corinth? Is Paul going to have to actually have to write to the other churches and say, don't trust the Corinthian church? Is Paul going to have to say they are anathema to us because they have so departed from the faith? Is this going to become this massive church split in Corinth between the true believers and now what would be revealed to be the lost people? Paul's shifting plans tell us that he knew this is a delicate matter. He had this first plan in 1 Corinthians, and he changes that to plan B, and then he shifts from that to plan C. We know that Paul's shifting plans were not wishy-washy. It wasn't that he was weak. It's that he understood he's walking on eggshells all the time. And so he's constantly trying to figure out what is the next step. Real ministry is relational. It's always emotional. You can't keep a safe distance from those that you're ministering to and with. When the Good Samaritan comes into the orbit of the man who has been assaulted and left bleeding and naked by the side of the road, you can't care for them from five or six feet away. You have to get up close to them. You have to bind their wounds and and anoint them with oil. You have to pick that man up and put him on your donkey and carry him forward. You have to have leave things to care for him. Here's money to care for him with the innkeeper, and I'm going to come back. I'll pay the remainder, and I'm going to come back and check on him. That tells you this man is going to be constantly on his brain. And we know that Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan toward us. But that tells us you can't do ministry to and with people without getting emotionally invested in them. It's utterly and completely impossible to do genuine ministry nine to five. You can't do real ministry in a punch the clock, leave it at the workplace kind of way. Now, I I want you to understand that doesn't mean that all ministry is painful. You will have fun times as you develop deep relationships with other people that you're discipling or counseling or doing ministry with or towards. You will laugh together, and by God's grace, you'll have stories together and develop memories together, and those will all be wonderful. But frequently, I'm just going to let you in on this reality. Frequently, as you are building deeper relationships, if you're going to do ministry correctly, I will describe it to you the way a mentor described to me, to me over 20 years ago. You need to understand that as you do relationships with people, you are putting in the bank relationally with them. 
You should think that every single person that you do ministry with or toward has a massive relational bank account, and you are investing in it. And so when you go fishing with them or you go walking with them or you laugh with them or you watch a game with them or you spend time with them, you tell stories with them, you let them into your life, and you get into their life, you're putting into the bank because I assure you there will come a day you have to write a check. And there will come a day when you write a check of confrontation or rebuke or discipleship, or you tell them a hard thing. You tell them something that disagrees with the way they think the world should or has operated. You'll open the Word and you'll show them a passage that confronts their sensibilities or challenges what they've thought or what they've always believed. And in that moment, the relationship will be on the line. And so as God gives you grace, do as much as you can to put in the relational bank. Understanding that is no sure guard against the loss of that relationship. And understand that it's going to hurt far more if they walk away because they don't want to hear the truth. But what's your other option? You see, because you need to do this because if you're going to love like God loves, it's going to require our hearts, not just our heads. I'll be honest with you, even when, I, when I've traveled and preached to places and and I've preached at a lot of Christian camps, it, it's so much easier to preach on Monday night because you don't know any of them. And so standing in front of a few hundred teenagers at High Point Camp in Pennsylvania and preaching the gospel was relatively easy. You do it in the power of the Spirit and you're walking with God and you're, you're just trusting Him and you're sowing the seed. But when you get up on Friday night and by Friday night you've learned, oh, there's this one over here that is going home this week and she has to tell her parents she's pregnant. And there's this guy over here that was asking you, how does he handle this situation with his abusive mom's boyfriend? And there's this one over here that has just come to Christ by God's grace, and you're praying this for you. Suddenly standing up in front of them preaching Friday is far harder because you're emotionally invested. When we do ministry with people, Paul is telling us there is this, this cost, and, and it requires heart and not just head. What happens when we invest this way emotionally in those we are caring for spiritually? Well, there's certainly physical ramifications. Certainly there, there's this reaction of a loss of sleep. Uh, Paul would describe even a sense of distraction. He's all there, but he's somehow space cadet at meals because his brain is at the church at Corinth. He's trying to preach in Troas, and he's thinking about Corinth. He's trying to disciple new believers and he's worrying about where Titus is at and where's the response. It weighs you down. How do we rest when we feel like a soul is in the balance? How do we function when we know that there's this spiritual war being waged and it's out of our control? It's an emotional investment. Now, you know what this is like. Have you ever sat here at Kennelly Road on a Sunday morning uh, and been singing a hymn and suddenly your mind begins thinking about another brother or sister in Christ that's right here and you're wondering how those words are impacting that soul and as you're singing your heart suddenly is engaged with the troubles of those around you the spiritual war and conflict that they are facing and, and you're, the words are coming and you're singing, but your heart and your mind 
suddenly become praying back to God for the burdens of others around you? That's what this is like. On the basis of levels. You wake up in the middle of the night and and someone is on your heart and mind. I know personally that there are people in this body who operate this way, who do ministry this way. I know it because you've told me so. I know it specifically because of even ways you've ministered to my heart and my family over the last several weeks. This is true ministry. It's going to cost you emotionally. So then why do it? I mean, let's just be honest. Life has enough stress. Why get invested in the lives of others if it's going to cost me emotional? I feel like I've only got so much in the emotional bank, so why would I give out any more? Uh, sociologists would tell us that any one of us really has about a max capacity of about 100 acquaintances in our life and about 30 closer friends. And so why try to add anybody else in? Why try to do ministry in any more significant way when it's going to cost us? Because we are called to love like God loves. People need not just the truth of comfort, but they need to know how God has comforted you in your suffering. And that, that moment when you go into someone else's life and you try to fulfill what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, to comfort others with the same comfort that you have received, when you have to do that, you make yourself emotionally vulnerable. When you go into someone else's life who is hurting or is in spiritual need and you say, hey, can I just share with you some ways that God was at work in my life? And you begin to share, and and that's all you're genuinely doing. Before the Lord, you know that's all you're doing. And suddenly they start reacting. Well, your situation isn't just like mine. You can't understand what I'm going through. You weren't even accusing them. You weren't judging them that way. Suddenly the pain of your transparency makes you just want to shut down emotionally. I'm never doing that again. Or you've invested deeply in a relationship and you've put into that bank, and suddenly you have to say a hard thing, and they don't want to be with you anymore. And you think, well, I'll never do that again. I'll be so much more careful about those that I develop these kinds of relationships with. Why would we do it then? Because it is the only way to do ministry God's way. I mean, doesn't he say we are called into one another's lives that we might weep? with those that weep and we might rejoice with those that rejoice to be near to the heart of god is to love those he loves you cannot do ministry with just your head you cannot do real ministry out of your intellect it is going to cost you emotionally Paul doesn't just stop there, though. This is when he comes to this core illustration, and he uses it about his reputation because this is the main way that they are attacking him. They can't see his loss of sleep. They can't experience his levels of anxiety and his correct worrying about them. And and just to hear, just understand this, this isn't a lack of faith on Paul's part. Any more than we would look at parents who worry and pray and are concerned over and presenting the gospel to their children because they want to see them saved or to their neighbor or their parent or their coworker and they're burdened for them. We don't call that a lack of faith. This isn't a lack of faith. This is what happens when you love people like Jesus calls you to love them. 
I would actually be this bold. If you don't and haven't experienced that, I would call you to it. But now they can see reputation. And so verses 14, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When we minister, it is all to point to Christ and not ourselves. As the triumphal parade wound its way through the city, everything was built to point to the general. Everything was built to point to the man of triumph, the the literal king for a day. The acting out of the battles pointed to his strategy. The, the, the truckloads of gold and silver and jewels and money and, and perfumes that he had won. Uh, when they, well, later when Titus conquers Jerusalem in 70 AD and they had his triumphal procession. So that's still some 20 years or so after Paul's writing this. When they do his triumphal procession, for example, they carried the implements of the temple through the city of Rome. The golden lampstand and the candlesticks, and we can, they actually have steels, S-T-E-L-E, the, the raised mosaic images uh, in Rome that depict this procession. All of this pointed to what he had won for Rome, and all of this pointed to his brilliance as a military commander, and all of this pointed to the people he conquered. Everything points back to Christ. The nature of true ministry doesn't point to Paul or to us, It points to Jesus, but how does it do that? Now, Paul's going to unpack this more in chapter 4. He's going to unpack more. How does our service and ministry point to Jesus? And it'll culminate, though, later in even chapter 12. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How does our genuine ministry point to Jesus? Because it comes out of broken and weak people. Your ministry, yes, God will use your strengths and your gifts. He's given those to you. But your ministry will be most effective when it is obviously and evidently Jesus doing it and not you. And that happens the most when it's evident and obvious that you are a broken and cracked clay pot in your weaknesses is when it shows up. Paul's actually saying the reason, part of the reason it's so honorable to be this captive in chains and in bondage is because somehow in that brokenness and in that bondage, it makes the general, King Jesus, look even greater. I get to live a life that shows his astounding grace and wisdom and his glory. And that happens when I am weak. That's why Paul is not ashamed to tell them he's lost sleep over them. Oh, look how weak Paul is. You see, if he was really a man of faith, he would never, ever lose sleep over them. Jesus even tells us parables where you sow and you go and you rest. And you should rest. But Paul is not embarrassed to admit that his soul and his spirit are wrestling for them. Paul's not embarrassed to admit that he looks like a broken and weak apostle. In fact, Paul sees that in Corinth, they want to praise these super apostles. 
Hooper Apostolus, <laughs> the hyper apostles. It's probably, we don't know if it's a name Paul gave them or they gave themselves. But it was people who were able to do ministry and never fail. People who were able to do ministry and maintain wealth. People that were able to do ministry and see great fruitfulness all the time. People that were able to do ministry for many years and only have success and never have failures. And that's not Paul. Paul's trying to minister to people that, that the church at Corinth began because of his ministry. He spent 18 months with them. He writes the, the letters to them, uh, two, three letters at this point before 2 Corinthians. This is now the fourth. He makes this painful visit. He, he sends a severe letter. He invests them in them, and they look at Paul, and they say, you don't speak very well. Frankly, you're ugly. That's just a low blow, by the way, right? Like, you don't, you're not a good preacher, and you're ugly. Wow! Um, and, and, and you don't have much fruitfulness to your ministry, and and you suffer, and the reason you suffer is because you actually don't do ministry well at all. And Paul is willing to embrace all of that, own all of it, and say, no, it's so that you can see the glory of Christ coming out of me. Because I'm so broken, and I'm so weak, and I'm so incapable. Paul's owning and living out the reality of what Jesus told his own city of Nazareth there in Mark. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown among his relatives, and in his own household, as Jesus' own brothers don't believe prior to the resurrection. Somehow, living their whole childhood with God himself, who never sinned, did not convince them of his identity as Messiah. It only hardened them as to who he was. And you might even remember at one point, and, and John talks about this, where Jesus is under the threat of being killed, and they actually say, why don't you go to Jerusalem then? It's like they want him to die. These are his own siblings. They're like full-on Cain to his able. Paul has poured his life into this church. And they so easily disrespect him and think little of him. Paul, his reputation is being thrown into the mud. As I told you a little while ago, and he describes this in Philippians chapter 3, he was a Pharisee. He was a Jew of the Jews. He was the man, and he's traded it all in to be treated like this? He's traded it all in to have the people that he has poured into to ultimately, Paul, at later, he describes himself as being all alone. Why is Paul all alone? Because nobody wants to be around him. He's a lightning rod of accusations. Nobody wants to be associated with this guy. Paul knows personally what it's like to be rejected by his friends and even co-workers. Paul knows what it's like to be mocked by others for doing what Christ has called him to do. Paul is literally like a walking loser. He looks a lot more like a conquered captive than a victorious apostle. That's why this illustration comes to his mind. Why does ministry like this happen so often? I mean, look at the prophets. They're all rejected. Look at the apostles. Look at Christ. Why? Why does God call us to do ministry like this? Because it shows Jesus. Paul's theme, life verse. You, maybe you were raised in Christian circles where they're always like, what's your life verse? Well, Paul, ha Paul had one. 
his theme, his dominance, his mindset as he moved from what the world thought of was honor to shame, he actually saw that he moved from shame to honor because his heart was this, that I may know him. In Philippians 3, the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Genuine ministry identifies with Jesus and suffers rejection with him. You know, we have, even a world, our world understands this concept. You know, it, it's very clear. It says, when you're reading all these books about leadership, right? Um, they have a dominant theme. Leaders have to be willing to suffer. If you're not willing to suffer, you'll never be a leader, ever. Because every leader will make somebody mad sometimes. As a matter of fact, they go on to that. They say every leader will make some of the people mad all of the time. There's never a decision you're going to make that's going to make people happy. Well, apply this to the gospel. You will always make somebody upset with the truth. It cuts against you. It, it cuts into your heart and into my heart. I, I, don't, I can't make it a week reading my Bible without being confronted with some sense of my weakness and my frailty and my sinfulness and my wickedness. I can't spend time just listening to worship music without being convicted over my own failed faith and, and weakness in the way I think and process and behave. The word cuts and it confronts. And so when you get into other people's lives and you have this emotional heart level ministry, right? Life touching life. You're going to make somebody mad at you. And the way most people handle that in their flesh is they make it your problem, not their problem. Right? I do this. I do this. People confront me over sins or uh, we see this weakness in your life, Steve. And you know what my brain immediately starts doing? It starts listing all the ways they are sinful and all the ways they are weak. Right? I, I start thinking of all the reasons while what they're saying might be true, they got a serious pine tree hanging out of their face they haven't dealt with. And so that becomes my defense. Maybe I do have a speck in my eye. Okay. Well, I'm going to be the bigger one here. I'm going to be the better person. I'm going to be the nicer Christian. I'm going to just humbly respond. But internally, I'm like, you lousy, unsanctified person. That's my flesh. Right? I mean, maybe some of you are in this room are like, how is he our pastor, right? And then others of you are like, oh man, we live in the same ballpark. <laughs> like, like, I just don't want it. Because it affects reputation. At some point, when that conversation gets difficult, somebody's going to assault your reputation. They're going to start throwing it all back on you. <laughs> a number of years ago, a number of years ago, I was um, counseling a guy, working with him. He's had some struggles. And so because of some of his struggles, I was very open and transparent about some of my struggles. I wanted to, 2 Corinthians 1, I wanted to comfort him. I wanted to give him hope for a future. I, wa I wanted to give him a direction, a light at the end of the tunnel, and him to see how Christ's grace can come into your life, and he can set you free, and he can change you and grow you. And, and I want him to understand, man, I'm with you in this. I, I was trying to live out what I've, what I've just been preaching. Fast forward, it's like a year later, a year later, 
I'm meeting with, with this guy and somebody else, and, and I'm trying to deal with them, and it's frankly a little bit of a convert, confrontational moment, and all of a sudden in front of this other person, he starts hanging all my old dirty laundry out. Like he took everything I was transparent about in private, in confidence, and he's just hanging it out there. And I'm just sitting there like, is this really happening right now? I mean, I, I was between stunned and like seriously unrighteously angry. Because I'm like, this is what I get? So now my reputation is getting destroyed in this moment? But Jesus prepared us for that, didn't he? If they reject me, are they not going to hate you? If they've killed me, will they not do the same to you? When he uses the language, take up your cross, he's not talking about you standing in the line at Walmart a little frustrated because somebody's not going fast enough in the self-checkout line. It's death to us. A cross is an implement of death. And part of what it will cost you when you do genuine ministry at times is your name, your reputation. Well, I don't think they're a good parent. I don't think they're good single. You know what? They're single. They don't even got the pressures we live under. Look at how they use their time and your name gets thrown in the mud. I bet they're not a good wife. I bet they're not a good husband. I bet they're not a good parent, grandparent, or child. I bet they don't honor their parents where they should. And your name gets thrown in the mud. Genuine ministry identifies with Jesus, though. So why would you do it? Because you understand in that moment, you are pointing people back to the only one who can rescue them, to Jesus Christ. To serve like Christ who hung alone on the cross is to do ministry like Jesus does ministry. At times, to serve like Jesus at times is to do it abandoned like Christ was abandoned. It's to do it in the garden where your heart is one to cry out, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. It's to show Christ, and it's to know him like no other. The word that Paul uses there, it's epigonosco. It's that, that I might gnosco Christ. It's that I might experience Christ. Paul says, I want to do ministry in such a way that at every turn, it gives me deeper insight into what Jesus did and how he lived. Do you want to know Jesus like that? God, I want you to bring whatever into my life, including including whatever pain and suffering is so from your good hand that I might experience Jesus. You see, I think in that question, our hearts are a lot more prosperity gospel driven than anything else. Eh, how about we just stop short of that? So I want all the good things, but none of the hard things. There's another cost, and it's material cost, and you see it in verse 17. For you're not like so many peddlers, merchants, salesmen of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This is really Paul's first uh, long-range cruise missile shot from the Mediterranean with like laser precision accuracy against the super apostles the hyper apostles this is his first hint hey fellas don't fall asleep from now through chapter 7 because i'm coming for you by the time we get to chapter 11 because you people are selling the gospel you see they're accusing paul because paul doesn't have any money even though they don't want to give him any money 
Even though a workman is worthy of his hire, Paul refuses to take money from them, but the super apostles, they're into ministry for what it benefits them, and Paul refuses to do it that way. The nature of ministry is you don't get rich doing ministry. God makes it very, very clear. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. True ministry will cost you comfort, safety, and the power and respect that wealth can bring you. Now, that doesn't mean you can never be wealthy and be a believer, but you just need to live in the reality that the wealth that God has brought into your life is part of the cattle he owns on a thousand hills, and he intends you to use it for his kingdom. Paul highlights his own material cost later in Corinthians. We know that Paul had to work very, very hard, not just as a minister of the gospel, but making his living as a tent maker. We know that Paul went without clothes and food at other times. We know that when he writes to Timothy, he's cold and he's in prison, and he asks Timothy to bring him his coat. Paul didn't even have two coats. And he can't, certainly can't afford to go out and get one, and he doesn't have any friends where he's at to go buy him one. He just asks Timothy to bring it to him. There weren't the resources around him. In Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, he refused to have a wealthy patron. In, in Corinth, it was this popular thing. Uh, it was really throughout the Roman provinces, but the well, really, really, really wealthy person would become a patron to a speaker, a public speaker, or to a religious figure. So I'm going to pay your salary privately so that you don't have to work, so you can give your life uh, to, to speaking, and in this case, to preaching. And Paul says, no, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because he knew that Paul would be accused in that moment of warping his message to mac with, match with the patron said i mean let's just be honest if your salary is coming from one guy it's gonna be really hard to preach against that one guy yeah i mean you got, you got a crowd of one at that point and it's not god and so paul refuses to have a wealthy patron because he doesn't want to twist the gospel and so paul's willing to pay the cost when we do ministry that costs us we show the worth of christ that's why he says where your treasure is there where your heart be also, whether that cost is through generous sacrifice because God has given you much, and so you're sacrificing to generously give or care for, advance God's kingdom, and so then you don't get to get the things you want. You're, you're going without something so that you can be generous with the resources God has given you. Or whether that's the resisting the urge to make life about here, whether that's turning down a promotion or a job opportunity because it would restrict or inhibit your ability to minister to others. Whether it's giving of your life to a kind of ministry or to a location so that you never make a lot of money. Whatever it is, genuine ministry will cost you. It will cost you money and things here for treasure in heaven. But Paul says, in the midst of this emotional reputation and material cost, somehow, somehow there's no greater honor than serving our conquering king in true ministry. How can that be then? How does Paul take this illustration and flip it on its head? These people are trudging along this path set out for them in Rome, in chains, 
carrying jars of burning incense that were intended to uh, create this smoke-filled atmosphere and a beautiful aroma, and flowers were thrown in the streets so as they walked along them, they would be trampled and uh, release the aroma. And so the, the, the fragrance, the aromatic just nature of this march is covering and everyone and settling over the city almost like a fog communicating really even in their pagan understanding you're in the presence of a god and paul's using all of these moments of this illustration and he says it's honorable to be shuffling along in chains trampling flowers and carrying incense how is that possible what do we make of this if ministry that he has just described with its emotional and its reputation and its material cost sounds bad, <laughs> if that sounds unusual and wrong to you, if that stinks to you, if you've heard those descriptions and you've been tempted to think like the people in Corinth not if you do ministry right. If it has an odor to you that you're thinking, I don't want to do ministry that way and I resist ministry that has that sense to it, then you're missing something. And Paul describes it as a fragrance from death to death. If that smells like defeat to you, like it did to the Corinthians. Paul's saying you're missing something key about following Christ. Remember Job? What does Job say about his lowly, shame-filled condition? He says, though he slay me, I will honor him. Paul is saying that the greatest thing that ever happened to him was to have been conquered by Christ. He says it's the best. To, because to be conquered by Jesus shows his power over your sin and my sin. I couldn't overcome lust or anger or bitterness or wrath. I could never overcome selfishness or isolation. I could have done as many 12-step plans as there exist. I could have taken as many pharmaceuticals as could have been provided. I could have sat through as much counseling and help as could have ever been designed. But I could never conquer my sin. But Jesus could. Paul could never have dealt with his pride and his arrogance and his genius intellect that made him think he was better than everyone else or even his murder of true believers. But Jesus could conquer. It shows the power of Jesus to have been conquered by him. He says it's a good thing that I shuffle along in chains because it shows who my new master is and how he's conquered my sin. It shows his love for the unworthy. 
As you watch these captives walk along, they would have had to whisper to each other and said, oh, that was the prince over there. Oh, that was this one. Oh, that was this one. Because they don't look like them anymore. They were, they were stripped of their princely and, and, and their royalty clothing. And they were made to dress like slaves. And even the slaves along the route could throw things at them. So that by the time they arrived at their crucifixion or at their execution spot, they looked and sounded like slaves. No one saw them for who they supposedly gloriously were. They were an unworthy people. To be conquered by Jesus shows his deep love for those that deserve no love. Paul says it's good. It's good that I've been conquered because he's made me his own. He says that it's good to be conquered by Jesus because it shows his worth as we serve him. We become a vehicle for his glorious ministry. We become ones that suddenly, suddenly everything we thought was honorable, Paul says in Philippians 3, is like dung. It's animal refuse. Wretched by the side of the road. Everything I thought was great about me is nothing so that I might know Christ, that I might gnosko, that I might experience Him in a deep and meaningful and passionate, soul-stirring, life-changing way. It's good for me. And so what the world says is shameful becomes honorable, and what the world says is honorable becomes shameful to us. Suddenly we align our hearts so those things that we previously we called evil, good, and good, evil, we now agree with what God says is good and with what God says is evil. And we become proclaimers of his majesty and of his glory. How in the world can we do that? And that's Paul's moment. And Paul's writing this illustration and so it just blurts out of him, who is sufficient for these things? Why would God use you? Your heart and my heart at times wants to say the emotional cost is too high. The reputation cost is too much. The material cost is too far. And Paul, he looks at it. He says, why me? How do I carry the weight of this kindness of God? When Jesus conquered you, he kicked open the prison doors of your sin and made you his. When Jesus conquered you, he opened the grave and called you out. When Jesus conquered you, he took out a heart of stone and he gave you a new heart. Will you not love like he loves? There is no greater honor than serving our conquering king in Drew ministry. And the fact of the matter is, though the costs are real, so is the honor and the glory from him. And so I shuffle along, carrying incense, chained as his slave, is the language Paul uses, because I will walk in one day. By God's grace, shoulder to shoulder with you, my brothers and sisters. And my heart will leap with yours as he says, enter in to my rest. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home.
And so may you and I walk the veer triumphalist of Christ as we do genuine ministry.